0: Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb. Of me, Emily Dickinson. Would you pray with me? Hope, Lord. You are our hope. Jesus, whose name means salvation, Yahweh the Lord saves. In you we have hope. Lord, thank you so much. For the chance to gather this morning together in person, to stir each other up to greater reliance upon you. Lord, as last week we looked at the new family that you give us, calling us from a life of familiarity and support to one that is unknown, one that is new, we thank you for the hope that comes with this, the hope of new life. The hope of new fathers, the hope of new siblings, a new home, new possibilities. Possibilities coming even from death, a time when there was no hope. To so be with us this morning as we explore this magnificent text, this story, that we're so privileged to still have in our possession today. And may you, Jesus, be glorified our worship of you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our text for this morning um, is Genesis 18 and Genesis 21, uh, portions of each chapter. Last week, we started our series selections in Genesis during this season of Ordinary Time. Um, And so as you'll see, we won't be covering every square inch of Genesis, uh, but we are going to be covering iconic, sort of pivotal stories in the history of Israel, the history of the patriarchs. Um, And so certainly between 12 and 18, there are other important sections, but but this is a very significant one. Um, So we're going to read 18 verses 1 through 15 and then jump to the first seven verses of chapter 21. A bit lengthy, but I think it is worth it given the, the drama and resolution of the story. So, Genesis 18, starting at verse 1, uh, and as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk in the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You may be seated. Well, friends, back in Genesis 12 uh, and a little bit in chapter 11, we learn that Sarai, which was her, wife, her name then, the name of Sarah's wife, or Abraham's wife, sorry, so many name changes. Sarah was barren. She had no child, it says. But in Genesis 12, we read that God promises to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land, the land of Canaan. Well, Then you move on a little bit to chapter 15. This is another covenant conversation between God and Abram. And he says, your very own son, Abram, shall be your heir. Then in chapter 17, you keep going. God says, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. He says, no longer shall your name be Abram or Avram, which means something like exalted father or father of a people. Now it shall be Avraham father of many peoples, father of many nations. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll establish my covenant with you and your offspring. And he even says, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall now call her Sarah, which means princess. He says, I will bless her and give you a son by her. This is chapter 17. And in verse 19, it says, and you shall call his name Isaac which means he will laugh. So As early as chapter 17, we get this very specific prophecy, promise, that Sarah would bear for Abram a son, and that they would call the name of this son Yitzchak, he laughs, or Isaac. But in chapter 12 of Genesis, Abram, if you remember, was 75 years old when he left Haran for the first time. And since then, he's gone down to Egypt. He's come back up through the Negev. He's gone all the way up the land of Canaan to rescue his nephew Lot. And then he came back down again. The Oaks of Mamre are in the south. So after all this journeying, and as we'll learn after almost 25 years, this promise had yet to be fulfilled to your offspring I will give this land. Twenty-five years, friends. That may not mean much to some of you, but that's almost my entire lifetime. (laughs) Imagine waiting 25 years to see this promise materialized. During this time, after 11 years, uh, if you read in chapter 16, you'll see that Sarah and Abram take matters into their own hands. And there we meet Sarah's maidservant Hagar, and to Hagar is born Ishmael, a child of Abram, but not a legitimate son, not a full biological heir. They're still waiting for that heir, that Isaac, to be given to them. What we get then in Genesis 18 and concluding in 21 is what's called an annunciation type scene. I know that's technical language, but let me explain in the study of stories, what's called narrative criticism or narratology, a type scene is a recurring episode in a story that relies upon pre selected or predetermined motifs. So it's a kind of pattern. Now, in Hebrew narrative in the Old Testament, there are a number of type scenes that you've probably come across. Uh, one such type scene is encountering one's future spouse at a well. This happens pretty often. You'll see it with Isaac and Rebekah. You'll see it with Jacob and Rachel. You'll see it with Moses and Zipporah. You almost see it with Saul when he meets these ladies, these women at the well. And then, of course, when you read John 4 and Jesus encounters a woman at the well, if you've read these stories, your eyes perk up. Another similar Popular type scene in Hebrew narrative is the appearance of God or angels in a field, kind of agricultural field. Moses meets God in the burning bush, and that is said to have happened in a field. Elisha sees these legions of angels in the sky, and that's said to happen in a field. Ezekiel and the dry bones, that's a field. And of course, the shepherds in Luke's gospel encounter these angels proclaiming the birth of Christ in a field. Now, probably the most common type scene with which you all are most familiar is the announcement of the birth of a hero or a significant figure to a previously barren mother. This type scene occurs all over the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. And you can think, of course, of Abraham and Sarah. You can think of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Manoah and his wife, Samson's parents. Elkanah and Hannah, Samuel's parents. In the New Testament, you've got Zechariah and Elizabeth, parents of John the Baptist. And friends, I would even add here Joseph and Mary, parents of Jesus. And what happens in this type scene, the common elements that you'll see every time, is there's a report of the wife's barrenness, her apparent inability to have children. And sometimes there is present, and this is an ancient culture, but sometimes there's a second wife present who is fertile. She can have children, but isn't loved as much by the husband. Hagar would fit this category, Leah and Jacob, and then Panina, another wife of Samuel's father, Elkanah. After this, you get the promise of the birth of, of a son. And and it is always a son because we're talking about inheritance and who would be the heir. And this promise is delivered through either an oracle, uh, a, a prophet, through a divine messenger, an angel, or God himself. Now, in these stories, what you commonly see next is conception there's the explicit mention that this couple comes together, as couples do, and that the child is born through the normal means. Now, Genesis 18 and 21, friends, is the prototype, you could say, of these annunciation type scenes. There's, there's no type scene that meets all these criteria that happens before this in the Old Testament. What's helpful to do, though, when looking at these type scenes is to study them in in parallel relation to each other, but to look not at their similarities, but rather at their differences. So if we were to include Joseph and Mary here, there's no coming together, as couples do. And Mary is not said to be barren, but she's a virgin. No seed had been sown on the field, the extension of this concept of barrenness. But that is not our text for this morning. Our text is Genesis 18, 21. But with our time this morning, I really want to dig deep in this passage and study its details. Because I think, friends, that through a close reading of this story, we can learn an awful lot about hope, Hope and the promises of God. So let's dig in starting at chapter 18 of Genesis. If you turn to verse 1, and I'll be working from the ESV, but I'll I'll try to look at at the original as well to draw out some of the details uh, because some of the details are quite striking. You'll read in verse 1 that the Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, appeared to him. And the him is, of course, Abraham. This, though, is the narrator speaking to us. So the narrator knows knows all. And when it comes to reading a story, the narrator is feeding us all the details that the reader needs to know. But friends, sometimes the narrator knows things that the characters do not know. Okay, we talked about this last time. So the narrator says that the Lord appeared to Abram. Abraham at this point, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Abraham, from the very beginning, knows that this is the Lord appearing to him, okay? And it says that he appeared to him at the terebinths, the tall trees of Mamre. So before established religion in ancient Israel, and this was much before then, there were these sacred groves. Uh, these, These clusters of special trees where people from a variety of cultures would go to access deities, different kinds of deities. And Abraham is from Mesopotamia, the land of Gilgamesh, the Enuma Elish, and all these gods. And so he is coming to Canaan with that baggage. And so he is trying to relate to this new deity, Yahweh as he has been taught to relate to these deities. And so he's he's setting up a tent by this sacred grove. And it says that he was was resting. Uh, This is similar to the word for Shabbat, or Sabbath, to rest. And I think what's going on here is, this is a midday siesta, friends. In the ancient world, not so much in Maine, in the summer a little bit, in the middle of the day it would get really hot. And you couldn't really do much work outside, Uh, so it was common that folks would would rest, they would take a nap in the middle of the day and and try to uh, hold out through this hot period. And so Abraham is napping, which means that God is showing up at an inopportune time for Abraham, okay? He's napping at the mouth of the tent in the middle of the day. And in verse 2 it says he lifts up his eyes, this is vivid storytelling, lifts up his eyes and looks and behold, behold, there are three men who are standing in front of him, it seems at a distance. All it says is three men, it doesn't say three angels, it doesn't say three obviously divine figures, it just says three men, three travelers. And Abram looked and ran to meet them. He ran from the mouth of his tent, so he got up from his nap, an act of faith, friends, wow, obedience to get up from the nap. He gets up from the nap and he, he pays homage to them. Now you might think if, if Abraham knows this is Yahweh, that he's worshiping here, but, but really this is just the common greeting of any ancient Near Eastern person who encounters a... a a passerby and wants to show them hospitality. He pays homage to them. And he says in verse 3, My Lord, it seems that he's addressing one of the three who steps forward perhaps as the leader. And he says, If I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass by your servant. In other words, stay a while since you've passed by this place and it is hot in the middle of the day. He says that I will take a little water, and you may wash your, your feet. He asks them politely, allow for this to happen. And he says that you should lean yourself, that's the language, bathe your feet, wash your feet, sit down, and sit back. He says, lean yourself against the tree, take a load off. He says that I will take some bread, that you may nourish yourself, and then you can go on your way. So Abraham is trying to show ancient hospitality here. And he's, he's not aware explicitly that this is Yahweh. Not yet. Okay, friends? In verse 6, we then get a flurry. A flurry of verbs. A flurry of activity. And I think it's helpful to really slow down here. Because you can pass over the the extent to which Abram is showing hospitality. It says, Abraham hurried from the tent to Sarah, and he said, hurry, the same verb, hurry, three sillas of flour, hurry, quickly, and make some cakes, do it quickly. And it says that to the flocks, or to the herds, Abram ran, keep saying Abram, it's Abraham at this point, Abraham ran, and he took the tender good son of an ox, And he put it before the young servant, and he says, hurry and prepare it. So Abraham is frantic, friends. Minutes ago, he was sleeping calmly, quietly, peacefully, and now he's frantically trying to show hospitality to these visitors. And then in verse 8, it says that Abraham himself took cheese and milk and the tender young ox that the servant had prepared, and he put it before the men, and he waited on them. It says that he stood by them under the tree while they ate. I get into this in detail because in the next chapter, which unfortunately we're not going to get to, two of these travelers visit Lot in the city of Sodom, and they're seeking hospitality. And Lot tries to be hospitable to them, but the men of the town of Sodom do the opposite. And in your own time, friends, I would read this story, Genesis 18, in parallel with the next chapter and contrast the hospitality that Abraham shows, not knowing that this is the Lord yet, contrast that with the lack of hospitality that appears in the next chapter, in chapter 19. So they're all leaning against the tree. Abraham is standing up, it seems, waiting on them, and then there is some dialogue in verse 9. They, it says in verse 9, they, it's the plural, collectively they're speaking, maybe one of them is speaking, it says they, say, where is Sarah, your wife? So we have not been told that Abraham has disclosed the name of his wife to them, so maybe we're meant to take this as a detail showing the a supernatural nature of these visitors, I'm not sure. But Abraham doesn't skip a beat, and he says she is in the tent. So it's hard to know, friends, if Abraham knows if this is Yahweh. However, he, he still, even if it isn't, in, if he doesn't know, he's showing ample, generous, frantic hospitality, which was a key value in the ancient world. In verse 10, then, now, this is a bit tricky. All it says in the Hebrew is he said. There's no name, it's just the pronoun he. So it's like before when Abraham addresses one of the three and says, My Lord, it just says he said. The ESV assumes that this is the Lord, and so it translates it, The Lord said. But friends, that's not a literal translation, it's he said. He said, I will surely return to you. This is the the verb return two times. I will return, return, which is emphatic. I will surely return to you at the appointed time. And this is where we get the annunciation type scene. And there will be, for Sarah, a son. Sarah, it says, this is an editorial aside The narrator speaking directly to us. Sarah, meanwhile, was dropping some eaves. That's Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry. She was listening at the tent door behind him. And another comment, remember that Abraham and Sarah were old. (laughs) The narrator does not mince words here. We're old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Sarah, friends, in colloquial English, was post-menopausal. Um, long after that period had ended, she, it seems, was almost 90 years old. So, verse 12, it says, The first verb is laughed. Laughed, Sarah did. She laughed to herself. That's meant to emphasize the the laughter that's taking place, but she does it in the tent. She's not part of this conversation. She does it to herself in the tent, and she says, shall I really have pleasure like this? The pleasure of rearing a child with my old Lord, my old husband, after I have been worn out, dried up? And immediately, in verse 13, the Lord. And this is the explicit name of the Lord. It says, the Lord. First time this word is included since verse 1 in this passage. The Lord said to Abram, what's this? Sarah laughed. And I think, friends, that the Lord, besides Sarah, the Lord is the only one to hear Sarah laugh. This is supernatural perception here. The identity of these travelers, especially this one spokesperson, is becoming more clear to Abraham. Sarah laughed and said, shall I really bear a child now that I'm that old? But remember, friends, that in chapter 17, God had explicitly promised to Abraham that his son Isaac would be born to him through Sarah. I can't help but think of Eden The early chapters of Genesis where God says something to Adam and he's supposed to relay it to Eve and then all H-E-L-L breaks loose. But here, there's a promise to Abraham and it's almost like he doesn't sufficiently communicate it to Sarah. In verse 14, we get one of the most iconic sayings in this chapter, which is, is anything too wonderful, too difficult for the Lord to carry out. He repeats what he said before, at the appointed time, at just the right time, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, God's not late. At just the right time, on God's schedule, I will return to you, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah, at this point, hearing the conversation, seemingly walks out of the tent. She's embarrassed. She's afraid. She says, I did not laugh. I didn't really laugh. But he says, no, but you did laugh. Now, friends, I don't think we're to to see here scorn or rebuke. Uh, It's easy to inject that into the language. As we'll see, I think it's very important that laughter happens. The word for laugh in Hebrew is Yitzchak. It's, it's literally the same word as Isaac. Let's jump to chapter 21, friends, and we'll look at the first few verses. We'll go a bit more quickly here. There's a number of intervening chapters between these, but it seems that that story presses pause, And then we're plunged back into it at the beginning of chapter 1. Here we get the name of the Lord, Yahweh, in succession. It it appears much more frequently than it did in chapter 18. And it says right away in chapter 21, And the Lord paid a visit to Sarah, just as He said He would. And the Lord did for Sarah, did to Sarah, just as He said He would do. In verse 2, she conceived and bore for Abraham a son in his old age. Here's that second component of the Annunciation scene. It, it seems that this is a, a normal conception, if you want to call it that. It's not immaculate. It's, it's not miraculous. The couple is coming together, and she bears for Abraham in his old age a son. At, at the exact time which God said, Friends, it had been 25 years since God initially promised this to Abraham, but God's not late. This is exactly when he had determined to do this. God's on time. It says, Abraham called the name of his son, and here we get some redundancy, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him. The readers of Genesis centuries later need to be told explicitly that I know I know you won't believe this but friends this is actually a legitimate son born to Abraham from Sarah that is why I think the narrator takes pains to emphasize this and to us it seems redundant and then in verse 4 Abraham carries out the covenant ceremony that was commanded in Genesis 17 circumcision And in verse 5, we're told explicitly that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. The next two verses consist of speech from Sarah. It's the first time she's spoken in this story since her uh, kind of deceptive uh, denial in chapter 18. But here she breaks out in poetry. And she says, Laughter. God has given to me. Friends, you could translate this, Isaac, God has given to me. We have an Isaac in our midst. You guys could call him laughter. We have other names in English, harmony, peace, faith, joy, even summer uh, is a word that means something else. It's a season of the year, but it's also a name. That's what's going on here, laughter. We don't have that name in English, laughter. Maybe we do. I, I don't know anyone. But laughter and Isaac are so close. And friends, it's crucial that Sarah laughed before. She Isaaced before. She says, Laughter, Isaac, God has given to me. All who, who hear about this will laugh. This is the exact form of Isaac's name. They will Isaac with me, they will laugh with me. Laughter, joy. It says, who would have said, who'd have thunk, is what it says in the Bible, verse 7. Who'd have thunk that Sarah would be nursing children for Abraham right now? Who would ever have thought that? Yet, I have borne him a child in his old age. This is the woman who denied laughing, breaking out in inspired scriptural poetry, praising God. And I think she's glad that she laughed. Friends, the heart of this story is really quite simple. It's tempting to try to preach a sermon where the truth is this new idea that no one's ever thought of and to shock you into new knowledge, but friends, this is a simple truth. And the truth is that if God makes a promise, even if it's been months years or two and a half decades, if God makes a promise, God will, in the end, keep it. Now, I'm the first to admit that there are many many ideas, many truths, concepts that in recent years have been called into question that are being kind of re-examined, but this truth is not one of them. This is a truth that I think the most liberal and most conservative Christians can agree on. It's a truth which transcends denominational lines. It's a truth that is non-negotiable or changing with the time or up for debate. God is a keeper of promises. Can I get an amen? Friends, when the promises of God are rightly understood, to reach back into the language of Dickinson, His promises, they they perch like a bird in the soul. God's promises sing. They sing to us a tune. Amidst the noise of the world, they sing a tune which never stops. Not at all. And that tune, that that faint wordless tune, it plays on amidst the darkest of storms. And there's no hurricane, there's no trial, there's no struggle that can ever hurt this little bird that warms. The promises of God can be heard, albeit faintly, in the chillest land, or on the strangest sea. And as promises, as God's promises, friends, they will never ask a crumb of either you or me. The promises of God have feathers. And I know you probably saw that sermon title and thought, what is he thinking? Has he just run out of titles? The promises of God have feathers. For those of you who know anything about birds, feathers are a sign of flight, the ability to, at a moment's notice, escape from danger. When I used to raise poultry, you couldn't let the poults, the ducklings, the chicks out in the cold rain until they developed feathers, moisture-wicking, resilient, protective Feathers. Friends, like a bird that can just fly away from danger at any moment, the promises of God have feathers. Like a bird that can shake off those hypothermic chilly rains, the promises of God have feathers. All that I'm asking you to do this morning is lay hold of the promises of God. That's it. I'm asking you to, to plumb the scriptures for promises, to find them. To to rummage around in your soul for promises, for God's promises. All I want you to do is let God speak his promises. He's got them. And remember that they all have feathers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the promise of new life out of death, the promise which you've given us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the new Isaac, the promised son that was born not to a woman barren, but to a virgin, Lord. The promised son who who died, who was slain, but who is raised for us in power, in glory, in new life. Lord, if you can bring life out of Sarah's womb, if you can bring resurrection out of the womb of the grave, then you can give us hope and new life today. Give us hope, Lord. Help us to feel your promises singing a tune to us when we most need it. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to inspire our worship today and that it would send us into this week with renewed vigor and hope and trust in you, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. In Christ's name, amen.